It is the grace of God who fills our lungs with air and enables us to praise Him. So we must do that. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we are forever thankful, forever grateful for your grace. We thank you that you, O God, because you are rich in mercy and grace and love, presented to us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that through him we might have forgiveness of sins, a relationship with God the Father. By grace, we have been saved through faith. It is not of ourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we have been created in Christ Jesus, your workmanship, to do good works prepared in advance for us to do. So, Lord, I pray that the thoughts in our hearts and our minds, every meditation we have, and all our recognition of your grace might be focused now on the truth of your word, that our hearts might be reshaped, refashioned, that where we are straying, you may correct us, where we are sinning, we may repent, where we are hard of hearing, we may become fully aware, and where our hearts are inclining toward hardening, that we might soften and listen and obey for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, um, our in-laws visited us during the week, my wife's parents. And uh, my wife's mother said to her, where's Rick? And she said, he's at work. And she said, I thought he only worked on Sundays. <laughs> and this is Tuesday. In all seriousness, she wasn't actually laughing. And Lynn said, no, no, he, he works like almost every day. I think there's a lot of people who think that that's kind of the way it is in the ministry. In case you're wondering, uh, yeah, this is not the only day I work. In fact, the truth of the matter is, in terms of the seriousness of your souls and the care of your souls, 24-7, 365 days of the year wouldn't be enough in the minds and hearts of most pastors to accomplish what needs to be done, to watch over you. And so we re rely on the Lord who is far superior, who does watch over you. But as we draw upon the end of the book of Hebrews, the pastor of that congregation gives some final thoughts about the seriousness of the congregation, the seriousness of the community, the seriousness of leadership in particular within the community, and under the whole idea of make certain that you are in the right place under the right leadership. When you come upon the end of someone's long exhortation 
this long written sermon, we find out. He was, from a, he was somewhere else writing them his sermon. You realize that the final thoughts are always those things that are really urgent in his heart. And so he gives us this very urgent exhortation today as we wind up what has been a tremendous, for me, just a tremendous uh, exercise in the study of our theology, the book of Hebrews. Never had the chance to really look at it as carefully as I have this time. I've never preached it before. And uh, I think most of you have really um, found this significant for your spiritual development. But the critical issue here as we close this great book, we'll be reading uh, Hebrews 13, 7 to the end of the chapter, is don't put your soul at risk. Whatever you do, and, and you know he's been talking throughout the whole sermon of, to those who are under persecution and, and struggles and all of that. And, and some of them were thinking of giving up and turning back and going away. And he says to them, whatever you do, there are a lot of things you can put at risk in your life, but don't put your soul at risk. Particularly where you practice corporate worship the faith community you choose. You know, m most of us understand the nature of finding a good doctor or, or what's necessary to find a good lawyer or we try to find a good, um, you know, a good uh, fitness club or a good school. And we, we, we painstakingly think about how to do that. The truth of the matter is really for the love of everything that really matters, make sure, make certain that you find a good soul care place. There's nothing more important in your life than your soul. Do your part when you find that place to make it better. This is a two-way operation that's very, very important. So today, I want to, uh, from this section, and we'll, we'll read it in a moment, but I, I want to point out three things in terms of what to look for and seek to advance in the church community so that the empowering presence of Christ will make His righteousness happen for you and your family. Because at the very end of his letter, he says, grace be with you all. That's, that's a, a tremendously powerful phrase. What he's really saying there is, may the empowering presence of Jesus Christ's righteousness rest upon you and your family. But there are things and lifestyle and choices that we need to make for that to be so. And so he gives this, and I want to look at three things uh, to, to see that happen. Uh, let's read the text together. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. 
And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them, obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. May the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation or sermon for I've written you only a short one. Can you imagine what his long sermons would be like? I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. This is the word of God. So what to look for? Well, the first I think is found in verses 7 and 8. Look for a place where the lifestyles of the leaders are worthy of imitating. Look for a place where the lifestyles of the leaders are worthy of imitating. Several weeks ago, I shared with you that there was some troubling statistics out of American evangelicalism in terms of the likelihood of evangelicals trusting their pastor. And I found it incredibly disturbing to discover that evangelicals trust at least six more professions, six other professions more than they trust their pastor. And it's not that these are bad professions or great professions, but it's really troubling to find out that somehow pastors are sliding down, down, down in the, in the place of trust. And I wonder if it isn't something to do with what's going on in these couple of verses. I wonder if it's not so much what the pastors say as how they live according to what they say that's the problem of image and credibility crisis. And that's why it says here to us, we're to get an image in our heads, to remember our leaders and it's not just any leaders, it's particular leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. And you have to think about that right now. You know, the church is going to be 90 years old next, next Sunday. Well, actually, really Monday, but Sunday. So we're in our 89th year on the home stretch. There have been a lot of faithful leaders who've taught the word of God over the years in order for it to be around for 90 years. And we're to think about those people who, who made such an impact in your life. Uh, and it says here in particular, to imitate the way of their faith. 
First of all, the Word of God and not the ideas of men is the prominent feature here. Think about those who delivered the Word of God to you. Remember them. Think about them. Not their ideas. Of all things worth remembering, it's leaders who loved you enough to to make sure they would tell you the unchangeable truth. That's why I think he slips into verse 8 right away and says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and and today and forever. So so be thankful for those down through these ages of faithfulness who've, who've, who've told you the truth and not allowed it to stray. Yeah, the simple fact is we have a historic record of the founding of our church. Keep in mind, the church itself is 2,000 years old. Uh, Calvary's a very young church in comparison. We're only 90 years old. But it was a few who sensed that there was some shift in uh, the teaching of truth. There were a few people, 17 to be exact, who felt that the place they were at was falling prey to the modernist movement of higher criticism that came out of Germany and that moved into some of our, our, higher, uh, our institutions of higher learning that were training pastors to start to embrace the cultural ideas of the age. And the reason that this church exists is because there were some who remembered their leaders who taught them the Word of God and who faithfully and courageously made the move to seek to honor the Lord by continuing to hand down the truth of God's Word with care and precision and not the ideas of men. Run away from leaders who want you to adopt to the ideas of the age. I'm not talking about being relevant or current. That's not it. It's who are seeking to change the obvious truth of God's Word that you can read for yourself. It sits there looking at you. It's not hard to understand God's Word. And we are continually watching, and all of us know that there are easy opportunities for erosion even among us. That's why Paul said in in Acts to the Ephesians, when I leave, be careful, there will be savage wolves who will come in among you. There are many, many savage wolves that don't look like wolves in sheep's clothing among us. And some of the wedges that are being driven in are are, are with respect to subjects like creation, sexuality, gender distinctiveness, Watch carefully for these things. A 90 years of faithfulness to God's Word doesn't happen easily. It happens with care, precision, a congregation that is committed to the truth of God's Word. And how do we know these people? Well, look at the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. The outcomes of their lives that come from true, genuine faith, what is being preached, should be evident to all. It's evident over time as well, in particular. That's what makes 
time so important? Do not make your selections on affability or charisma or the ability to attract a crowd through oratory excellence, but rather look at lives of those who teach, lives of those who bring you the Word of God, their, their care for you. Is it risky? Is it sacrificial? Is it costly? Their marriages, how they manage their money, their faithfulness, their consistency to God's Word and to living God's Word out, to believing in God in the face of, of great obstacles and, and challenges, to, to, to cheer for the congregation, to remain faithful, that God can help us. We don't have to cave to the thoughts of the age. These are all important things. I wonder if his congregation, when he reminded them of the teachings of the past and the teachings of Moses, the teachings of the Ten Commandments, I wonder if any of them there in their congregation said, that's old-fashioned stuff. And that has nothing to do with the cultural mores of Rome in the year 1 A.D., Because keep in mind, to this congregation, the Ten Commandments were 2,000 years old. Just like the teachings of the book of Hebrews are 2,000 years old to us. And congregations all over the place are saying, this word of God, it's old, it's old-fashioned, it doesn't, it, God doesn't mean this anymore. And then he says, no, 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 come away. Jesus, Jesus, same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same God, same truth. The moral truth that's 4,000 years old is the same morality that is in vogue today. Remember those leaders. Look at them and imitate their lives. If they are not Im lives that can be imitated, maybe they're the wrong leaders. And, and from your perspective as a congregation, build into the ministry culture. If we want to have healthy leadership, then build into the ministry culture intentional institutional effort to nurture the health of its leaders. Make certain that, that the work and the output expectations on ministry leadership makes room, breathing room for personal growth, for family time, for personal interest, for being healthy physically, for being healthy emotionally, for being healthy spiritually. I've been in ministry now for 30 years, so now I'm kind of in the in the, in the range where younger guys are calling and asking, you know, can we go out and, and have a, a coffee? Can we go out to lunch? I want to talk to you about church. I want to talk to you about leading church and what, what that should look like. And sadly, story upon story is of congregations that are unhealthy and presenting an unhealthy culture to its leadership. The vast majority of ministry leaders get out of ministry within a short window of time. So look for a place where the lifestyle of the leaders are worthy of imitating. Secondly, in this big section 9 to 16, I would say, I would summarize it this way. Look for a place where the teaching is clearly sound and not strange or novel. See what it says in verse 9? Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. You mean that happened then too? Who would have thought 2,000 years ago that they get carried away by strange teachings. Would you agree with me? I, 
I, I've been studying hum, humankind for quite a long time, that we are vulnerable to tabloid sensationalism. I, I mean, if anything were ever more true or more obvious in terms of the time we live in, that tabloid sensationalism is kind of intriguing to us. It's fascinating to us. We're attracted to it. The television programs filled with reality shows that are not so much reality. We love to hear news clips that are of the sensational. Do we really care who Russell Crowe is, is, is pursuing in these days? Yes, we seem to. It seems to matter to us. And so we are vulnerable to this kind of thing, to, to reality shows. We want quick fix stuff like lotteries. Lotteries are a really big deal to us. Or infomercials. You know, they fill the television station. You know, if you send in money, you can get not just one, but two. Of course, separate shipping and handling charges will apply. So the thing is really only valued at the handling price. He says here, um, it is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods. Do we realize that the sound and good teaching that you have received from remembering your leaders of the past is a gift of God, the grace of God, that Often we, maybe we don't think enough about, about having an attitude of thanksgiving, but, but to be given the truth, to be told the truth, to, to, to have the, uh, those who will tell you the truth is the grace of God in action. Not because we deserve it, not because we have merited it, we've not done anything to deserve God's grace, that God has just gifted us. Here it is. Have the truth as a gift of my heart, of my grace. And so he's saying to the congregation, make certain that you value this incredible gift of God's grace and have your heart strengthened by what he gives you and don't go around searching for other things that are not from him. Don't squander this gift. Have any of you here mastered God's word yet? I have devoted my whole life to seeking to master the Word of God. And I feel so woefully inadequate to understand the incredible quantity of truth that's contained here. We have no time for strange teachings. We have no time for tabloid sensationalism. But, but here's the point here. Not by ceremonial foods. Why would he say this? Well, we know that they were thinking about going back to their old days. They were thinking about going back to the Old, old Testament customs, whereby ceremonial foods were necessary. Remember, we talked about this last week or a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember which. But we talked about the fact that, that our approach to God is interrupted by our unholiness. Each of us are impure and unholy. 
and are therefore not able to approach a holy God. Now before Jesus Christ, in the time of the Old Testament, the ceremonial foods were a purposeful reminder to the people of how impure their lives were so that they would know that in their worship of God they needed to do some things that couldn't clean them up but would remind them of how far short of the glory of God they had fallen. And these ceremonial foods were to bring to their lives a ceremonial purity or purification so that they could temporarily approach God. Now when Jesus came, all those ceremonial foods which were on purpose, pointing to the day when Messiah would be the substitute and he himself would be our purification. He would be our righteousness. And so that now we can approach the living God with boldness because of Christ. He's saying to them, if you go back to that food, you are negating the value of Jesus Christ. We were able to come in here this morning boldly before the throne, and and we can come before the throne of grace boldly. Why? Not because we're any different than the people of the Old Testament other than this. Because we know Jesus Christ. He has come into our life and we now have acquired his righteousness. And so we can approach the Father in heaven. So he says, don't go back to ceremonial foods. They have no food value. It's important for us as God's people to be able to know the difference between those things, those religious things around us, that have no food value and those that do have food value. He's saying here, strengthen yourselves with the grace of sound teaching that has food value. What kinds of things do we have around us that are of no food value? Because by the way, we've got a lot of things under the guise of Christian that have no food value. I'll give you a couple of things that came to my mind that are going on in our systems. Strange teachings, self-help therapy that seems to be more palatable. The prosperity gospel has no food value. Sensational gospel has no food value. Quick fix gospel has no food value. Reimagining God has no food value. God has already shared with us, given us the revelation of the living God. Anybody who reimagines God in a different way, then he presents himself in this revelation of Jesus Christ is of no food value. External religious rituals have no food value. Overrealized eschatology has no food value. Say what? Yes, overrealized eschatology. I think it's important for us to say this because we, in our circles, we have to be very careful that we understand the difference between what is of value and what, is no, what does not have any food value to us. And overrealized eschatology is simply this. Pastor Nick prayed it in his prayer this morning. Not overrealized eschatology, but he prayed it this morning. Someday... In the new heavens and the new earth, we are promised in the book of Revelation, there will be no more tears, 
No more sickness, no more pain, no more death. Yes? Every so often, because of the amazing grace of God, he takes one of those things from the eschaton and drops it into the present. We call that a break-in from the age to come. Sometimes God chooses to heal a sickness or he chooses to raise the dead or he chooses any number of things that will be our only experience in the age to come. But it is not normal. It is not the expectation if you're faithful enough, if you're filled with faith enough that God will always heal you, that God will always raise you from the dead, that God will always bring in the eschaton and it will be the normal way we live. No, the Bible says that's the way we're going to be. And by God's glory and for God's praise, every so often he chooses because of his grace and for his own reasons and plan to drop one of those things into our midst. And we're invited to pray for those. But it's of no food value to tell God's people that that should be the way that you live every day normally in your life. It damages people. It hurts people. It causes them to be insecure in their faith and their trust and to not understand the living God as he, is just, as he has portrayed himself. And so the leaders in a legitimate place where righteousness is proclaimed and the right redemption is taught need to feed and will feed God's people in the same way and in the same place that the word of God does. That's why he says that Jesus suffered outside the camp. And those faithful leaders take their people outside the camp of this culture to where Jesus is and bear the shame and reproach of saying no to this culture, including Christian culture that feeds us things of no food value and takes us to the place where we go out of this system, out of this cultural system, we don't become a part of it. And so, of course... Blessed are you if your leaders can cut through the fog and the soup of untruth and lead you with precision, taking you to the truth. And I would encourage you on behalf of this pastor who writes under the inspiration of God's word, don't push back on these things. They are for your good. Don't push back on teaching that tells you don't eat stuff that has no food value. And so he says here, through Jesus, verse 15, therefore let us continue to offer to God sacrifice of praise. You want to look for a place that teaches us to please God through a continual stream of seamless sacrifice, as John Piper uh, states it, by what we sing and say and do. This is marvelous what we're taught here. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, and do not forget to do good to share with, and sh to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. You need and you want to be in a congregation, in a community, under the teaching of leaders who tell you how to please God, don't you? I mean, isn't that what it's really about? I mean, I want to make sure that my life is pleasing to God. 
Uh, there are a lot of things that we can be doing, but this tells us very specifically what God calls us to. What are our sacrifices? What are the sacrifices that please God? It's not ceremonial food. It's not external ritual. It's that we would say and sing and do unto others those things that demonstrate to everyone around us the great value we put on Jesus Christ. That's what honors the Lord. That's what our sacrifice of praise is. That we gather together in community and that when we're by ourselves or when we're with a few others, that everything that we say and everything that we sing and everything that we do unto others should be with an eye that we, th- that we realize I, my life is to demonstrate all the time the great value of Jesus Christ. That's why he sources this teaching a couple of verses before and says, because we have no enduring city here. Christ is our great value. What if I were to tell you next Sunday that the gifts that we're handing out are to actually award each one of you $10 million in your bank account? Would we have a hoot nanny next Sunday or what? Would the singing be louder than it's ever been? Would the shouting and saying be greater than it ever is? Beloved, it should not be. Would you rather have the living, eternal God deposited in your heart or $10 million deposited in your bank account? Are you having to think about that? Seriously. So shouldn't our gathering... Because I know if we said you had $10 million in your bank account, what the gasp would be in here. Shouldn't we, when we gather, say to each other how magnificent Jesus Christ is? Sing to the Lord together how magnificent is the Lord together. Some of you say, well, I, I can't sing. I don't sing. I, I can't carry a tune in a, in a pail. I know. I, I've heard some. <laughs> this is not about how tonal you are. This is about how love, how in love with Jesus you are. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you can. Make a joyful noise, at least, to the living God. And what we do to each other is all to demonstrate how much we value Jesus. Can you imagine how the world would be reshaped? Your world, our world, our community, our church. If all, everything we said and everything we sung and everything we did was only and always about the value of Jesus. With these sacrifices... Is God pleased? So our role is to offer to our great God our sacrifices from our lips that praise Him and confess His name, our hands that serve Him because we have no enduring city here. And there's a final. In this one last verse, 17, is all I want to look at this morning. Look for a place where leadership makes you feel spiritually safe. Find them. 
and obey them. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. This is a bit tricky for me. You know, he, he wrote from a distance this. He said, by the way, I'll come and talk to you a little bit later, but um, obey your leaders and submit to them. I got to sit real close to you and say this. And we tend to bristle at the words like obey and submit, most of us. It can be just because we're maybe rebellious by nature, or it could mean that we've been abused by leadership. There are any number of possibilities. As Piper puts this, this is culturally outrageous. To ask people, to call people to obey their leaders and submit to the authority, it's, it's culturally outrageous, and it is, isn't it? Because for the most part, we become addicted to individual rights and freedoms. That's how most of us have grown up. That's the context we live in. That's who we are. Don't you mess with my individual rights. Don't you mess with my freedoms. And here we're being called to obey leaders and submit to their authority. What are we to make of this? It seems to me that we are to pay very close attention to the fact that when we, come, when we become Christians, when we become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we um, voluntarily surrender our individual rights and our freedoms for the greater cause of loving the Lord Jesus Christ and caring for those he loves. So we really have to give way to privilege and obligation and responsibility. The privilege of being called the children of God should not be squandered or wasted. The obligations, the responsibilities that come along with that, obey and submit. Maybe it would help if I... If I uh, elaborated on the word obey and submit that are used here. Maybe it would help a little bit. The obey word here that's used is, is the idea of intentionally persuaded, to, to be intentionally persuaded by someone trusted. To allow yourself to be intentionally persuaded by someone trusted. The idea of submit here is to, is to choose to move over to give way to their authority. It's to choose to move over to give way to their authority. This is not so much a take emphasis as it is a give emphasis. He's calling on the people. He's calling on the congregation. He's calling on the membership of the church. Give over obedience. Give over submission. Because it is... Because leadership is Christ's plan. We live in a kingdom. While we live in a country together, we live in a kingdom. The kingdom we serve in has a king. He's Jesus. And it's structured and it's established. And so he has given us this responsibility. And we, we need to understand the stakes of all of this. In... Um, Thomas Rainer's 
a very small book called I Am a Church Member, he tells us some startling realities which should um, concern us, and they are these, that based on a study, and of course, again, this was done in the U.S., but generally U.S. studies in terms of evangelicalism are more encouraging than Canadian studies. So if anything, the results are worse for us. But in a study of 557 churches between the years of 2004 and 2010, nine out of 10 churches in America are declining or growing at a pace that is slower than that of their communities. So basically the church is dying in the US. And there have been many ideas put forth as to why this is happening. And we're constantly going to be talking about but what to do about that, but, but perhaps we can look at it from a different angle and realize that, that maybe, he writes here, the, the problem is it's, gen, it's a generational issue. It's a generational problem. Because he writes that about two-thirds in this study that what was dis, dis, determined was that about two-thirds of the builder generation, those born before 1946, are Christians, 66%. But only 15% of the millennials are Christians. Now, millennials, as he writes, are the largest generation in America's history. 80 million millennials. Millennials are those people between the ages of 18 and 38. I'm looking at a lot of them in here right now. Thank the Lord. Because you are becoming a rare breed. The tragedy is that in one generation, the grandparents, the grandchildren, where the grandparents were 66% Christian, the grandchildren are now 15% Christian. The boomers, of which I am, are losing their children to the faith or from the faith. There's a, there's a gross urgency. Listen, if we were lions or zebras, there would be an international study done with respect to how soon we're going to be extinct. Christianity in this country, in North America, is an endangered species and going faster than any of us could have ever imagined. The reason we're looking around our culture and saying, what is happening, is because there aren't many Christians left. And if the church of Jesus Christ doesn't pay heed to these kinds of instructions about how we are to function as, a, as an energetic, God-blessed community of faith reaching out, we will be part of the problem and not part of the solution. So he says here, it is critical for you that you obey and submit to the leadership that is committed to what? Watching over you as men who must give account. Your souls are being placed in protective custody by accountable leaders who seek to make decisions that will seek to raise the bar of awareness about Jesus Christ. Not only here, but throughout all of our community. A leader who takes your soul and their guardianship very seriously. That's who you should be looking for. By the way, this church isn't run by one leader. I hope you know that. We have five pastors. I'm just one 
suggestion of four, four other guys. And then it goes beyond that to our ministry leaders, and, and it goes beyond that to our deacons, so that anything that we do here that's of any consequence at all has at least been agreed upon by 25 leaders. That's the kind of guardianship that he's talking about here and that we should expect. But I notice here with fear and trembling, those who must give an account, I personally recognize that I must give an account for my spiritual guardianship of your soul. I understand that. I understand that at the judgment seat of Christ, I will have to do what most of you will not have to do. I will have to stand before Jesus and give an account for everything that I taught you and every way I lived in front of you and whether or not I watched over your souls and whether or not I confronted you when I saw sin in your life that was poisoning your very soul or whether I just said it's too hard for me, I want to escape it or how much I actually cared for you. And so is it with every other pastor in our church. So what can you do as your part? Well, obey them so that your work, their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. You will need to be able to invest joy in the entire enterprise. Are you willing to do that for your own sake and for the sake of your brothers and sisters? to invest joy in this ministry. I have a newsflash for you. Joyful pastors do a better job. I know that from personal experience, but I, that's the point he's making here. He is making the point here that you can be a hindrance, you can be a grumbler, you can be a complainer, you can be an inhibitor, you can be a whiner, you can be a person who brings all kinds of distress to your pastor. Go ahead. It'll be of no advantage to you. Because joyful pastors do a better job because they love their work. And their work is you. It's just better for you. If you pay heed to these kinds of things, it's urgent and it's difficult work. I would rather the lips of another be saying this, but... You get it. The lips of another are saying this. I'm, am I making anything up here? Is this not all here in the text? This is the lips of another. This is the Holy Spirit's word. This is the word of God. Because as you do your part, the work is a joy. And you yourself will enjoy the product. For sure. There's always a reason why some churches grow and some churches don't grow. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So it's not because of Jesus, right? The Word of God is the same yesterday, tomorrow, and forever. It's not the Word of God that's different. The difference is in leadership and how that leadership is treated by those in the community. And of course, it's always about Jesus but it's whether or not we're going to take his word seriously or not. So pick the right church and be the right member 
and God will grow the church. And he closes it off by a couple of exhortations, and one of them is pray for us, and I want to just throw that out to you as we conclude. Would you please pray for us? Would, would it be too much to ask you all to pray every day for at least five minutes for us? Would that be too much to ask? I pray for leaders every day. I pray for leaders. And it says here in the text, pray for us. This is God work. Pray for us five minutes every day. Pray for you pastors. And then count on God to cause your faith to persevere, verses 20 and 21, because it pleases him when it happens. And then grace be with you all. The empowering presence of Jesus Christ will make righteousness happen in your life, in the life of your family. That's the promises that are given to us here by God's word. In his book, Oswald Sanders' book, Spiritual Leadership, he quotes from an old book called The Soul Winner's Secret. Old, by old, it was written in 1918, which by my math, which is very easy, is 100 years old. By an old Salvation Army leader, Samuel Brengel. In writing about his own journey uh, toward church leadership or citadel leadership, however you want to call it, it is not won by promotion, but by many prayers and tears. It is attained by confession of sin and much heart-searching and humbling before God by self-surrender, a courageous sacrifice of every idol, a bold, uncomplaining embrace of the cross, and by eternally looking unto Jesus crucified. It is not gained by seeking great things for ourselves, but like Paul, by counting those things that are gained to us as loss for Christ. This is a great prize, but it must be paid by the leader whose power is recognized and felt in heaven, on earth, and in hell. Our Father and our God, I pray that we would be the right place and that we would be the right leaders because we serve the right God. We serve the righteous Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, O oh God, that we would take to heart your exhortation to us. We are not left to wonder about healthy churches. We are just left to decide whether we will choose to follow your way or reject it or rebel against it. And so I pray, O oh Father, that you would cause our hearts to incline themselves to respond to your word in obedience. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. Beloved, you know, I was, I was just thinking as that song was singing about what's going on in my heart these days and I know it was a year, a year and a half ago a switch just went off in my life and I think it has to do with I know it has to do with my age but I, I, I can see the end now and I never used to think about that 
just didn't seem to be obvious. And I just think to myself, I feel like I haven't done enough for my Lord. I feel like I haven't accomplished enough. I feel like I haven't given enough. I feel like there's an urgency that here in the, in the statistics of our ministry era, we're, we're losing the church, not gaining it. There's just such an urgency in my heart these days, and it's, it won't go away. I can't, I can't handle reading those numbers where our 18 to 38-year-olds are, are not coming. We, we we're not even holding our own children to the faith. So we can't, we can't fool around with anything that teaches us how we must do church. We have no time to fool around with petty things or get in each other's way. These are days to make sure that we imitate faithful leaders and crave sound doctrine and teaching and obey our pastoral leaders who give their hearts to watch over because we're losing the generation that we're trying to minister to. So radical efforts are needed and we need to bring joy to each other and we need to band together and we need to model Christianity in a way that we've never modeled it before and we need to show the 18 to 38 year olds that this Jesus is of immense value. As we sign off of this great book of Hebrews, don't sign off on your hearts on what we have learned. It is a radical life that we are called to live. Let's live it radically for Jesus. Oh God, I feel that the end is too soon and the work is too great, but who am I? You have faithfully handed down leaders to us over all these years, and you will be faithful. But may we be faithful in our generation, I pray, O oh God. I hate to be the legacy whereby we were the leaders who lost the church in Canada. Please, please, by your grace, let us do better, I pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.